I invite you to take out your Bibles once again and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. As we go to God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so, Father, would you be pleased to feed your hungry people today, that we would continue to grow up into Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Here's week three in our series in Ecclesiastes, A Life of Sanity in a World of Vanity. As I mentioned uh, last week, uh, it's going to be more than 12, uh, probably less than 25, but don't know um, how many uh, it's going to take to get through the book. Um, I do hope that this uh, title, uh, the very title itself, A Life of Sanity in a World of Vanity, will help all of us stay anchored to our calling, our prime calling to live by faith in Jesus Christ and and not by sight in a fallen world, a world that to this day is full of sin and misery, full of frustration and futility, full of confusion, if not chaos. I hope this title will help us um, find, maintain, and strengthen an eternal perspective rather than a temporal perspective on life, uh, to increase our recognition that the there and then of heaven should and indeed can influence the here and now on earth. As I've said the past couple of weeks, I'll say probably once again today that Ecclesiastes, I think, could be considered in many ways an extended commentary on Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Let's listen to Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 one more time. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I continue to study about the very title of this book, Ecclesiastes. It's not a word that we use really outside the church. Um, Most literally, you can see it as saying one who speaks to the congregation. And the the preacher, uh, Solomon, is is preaching, excuse me, he's he's teaching, yeah, he's preaching to the congregation, his his reader, his audience. And, And God's word here is speaking to us, the gathered congregation as well. It's wisdom literature. It's, it's a concern with imparting wisdom and knowledge. It's going to teach us more and more what it means to fear the Lord. And why was it written? Well, its overall purpose uh, is to present the necessity of fearing God in a fallen and frequently confusing and frustrating world. It's going to show that life without God, life apart from God, life not acknowledging God is empty. But a life with God, a life acknowledging God, a life of trusting and obeying God is a life that's full, or at least it is fulfilling. 
Those of you who have spent some time in Ecclesiastes know it is a challenging book to understand and apply. The structure sometimes is hard to understand. It shifts between topics. Uh, We haven't seen really the positive yet, but soon we will see it go from negative to positive back to negative. And at times we'll scratch our heads and go, wait a minute, it seems contradictory to some other parts of the Bible I'm familiar with. But also it seems kind of internally contradictory. Now at first glance, that might be kind of what you see is happening. But upon further reflection, you'll see that there is no ultimate contradiction. But to be sure, at first glance and on the surface, it is, at least the part we've been in so far, is is overly pessimistic. But I believe as we spend some more time and reflect a bit, this pessimism will give way not to some kind of naive optimism, but rather to realistic faith. This is an important book, and and we neglect it, we ignore it to our detriment, but we turn to it and pay attention to it to our great benefit, to our blessing. Why? Of course, it's God's word. It's God-breathed. It's profitable. It's useless. Useful, excuse me. The endings of words are important. There's a big difference between useless and useful. And hopefully we'll see that more and more. It's a lamp. It's a light. It's sharp as a two-edged sword. It's the, the sword of the Spirit. Ecclesiastes will help us observe the world around us. It'll help us to open our eyes, open our minds. It'll... It'll help us ask the right questions, the ultimate questions that need to be asked. It'll help us gain and maintain an eternal, a a Godward perspective. In a word, I think we're going to come to see that Ecclesiastes will help us distinguish between the temporary and the eternal, and then to be able to live accordingly. Because if we can discern between the temporary and that which lasts, that which is fading and that which endures will be able to live for what matters. Again, we've got to view Ecclesiastes through the lens of the entire scripture, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. We remind ourselves of Jesus' last words of instruction to his disciples before he would be betrayed and brought to trial and executed. What did Jesus say in John 16? I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus said in the world you'll have trouble, a world of vanity. But in me you'll have peace, you'll have sanity. You see, Ecclesiastes, I believe, will help us take heart, take courage, be of good cheer, because it will direct us away from ourselves into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who rescues us, who makes us sane, who rescues us from ourselves, and who keeps us sane when we're tempted to go off the reservation, to leave the trail. He brings us to faith, and then he keeps us in faith. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the beginning and the ending, the bookends that hold the book together. We saw from the prologue his statement that all is vanity, meaning that it's like a mist, it's like a vapor, it's like smoke, it's like a breath, it's fleeting, it's empty. And at the epilogue, at the end, in chapter 12, we saw him say again, all is vanity, 
But then the preacher or the narrator tells us that, you know what? Ecclesiastes is going to have words of pleasure and also words of pain. And it will provide a perspective that we have to have fear God and keep his, his commands. It will also help us to prepare for death and judgment. You see, the end of Ecclesiastes enables us to see the end of the matter and then, as it were, live life backward. Last week, when we made some observations under the sun, we saw the preacher ask the question, what does man gain? And he observed the natural order of the earth, the sun, the wind, and, and streams, and he observed the human experience. And the human experience is one of failure, failure of speech, of sight, of hearing, even of memory. And we saw a pivot point between the, the natural order and the, and the human experience. The pivot point was in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. Not just some things, not just most things, not many things, but all things under the sun, full of weariness. As I mentioned last week, it's a setup for the rest of the book. It's an acknowledgement of a longing for something new and something that will last. The question in verse 3 led to this poem, verses 4 through 11. And the poem sets the tone for the book with its motto and its theme. And to quote Derek Kidner, it sets the stage by, quote, by its picture of a world endlessly busy and hopelessly inconclusive. Do you hear that? It's a picture of a world endlessly busy doing something, going somewhere, but hopelessly inconclusive. There's no conclusion. There's no resting place. There's no point where it ends. And this poem will now lead to a quest. I think we're going to be able to see that this, uh, this quest that we see in verses 12 through 18 is also a double introduction, as it were, to the book. Because after the, the, the question is posed in, in verse 3, and it's been briefly illustrated in 4 through 11, he comes to turn, the, turn from the analogies and the impressions to what we can directly know from experience. He, he was talking about um, you know, just observing the earth, and he was talking about, in general, man's sight and his hearing and his memory. But now he's going to turn to some things in experience. And we're going to see, beginning today, a variety of human pursuits in order to ask if anything on earth, under the sun, under heaven, has lasting value. So we're going to unpack and explore our text by joining the preacher as he gets started on his quest. And we're going to follow the structure of the text by considering it under two headings in view of what the preacher says about himself. First, I've seen everything, verses 12 through 15. And second, I'm a wise man, verses 16 through 18. So let's start with verses 12 through 15. I've seen everything. I, the preacher have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything 
that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I've seen everything, the preacher says, and here the preacher kind of reiterates his qualifications as he shifts, as the book shifts into the first person. He's writing now from the, from the, um, uh, from the um, perspective of age and experience, and he's looking back on his life, and he's going to take us on a journey with him. And what did the preacher do? Well, he sought out. He searched. He, he wanted to go to the roots of the matter. He, he searched. He wanted to investigate a matter on all sides. He, he picked it up and he examined it. And he even picked it up and wanted to see what was beneath it. All the way to the roots. He applied his heart to seek and to search out. And notice he throws in there by wisdom. Who is Solomon? Well, remember he asked not for riches and honor and wealth. He asked for wisdom and God was pleased to give him wisdom. And, and people came from all kinds of places to, to see Solomon of wisdom. And you remember the story of the, the two women who claimed an infant. And, and Solomon's wisdom was able to cut through to the truth. He, 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 he sought out and he searched by wisdom, by what he had been given. And what did he find? He found out that it was just an unhappy business. It was, a, it, was, it was travail. It was a sorry task. It was troubling. It was burdensome. The harder he tried to understand the meaning of life, the more frustrated he became with all of life's unanswerable questions and impenetrable mysteries or enigmas. He came to see that the endeavors of the world are all performed under the curse of God. And he draws the conclusion you see in verse 14. All is vanity and a striving after the wind. Again, he's bringing in that expression, all is vanity. It's a mist, it's temporary, it's transient, it's tedious. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And, and this image of striving after the wind. What a great image trying to catch the wind in your hands, trying to hold on to the wind. It's a vivid picture of life. And Solomon, the preacher, is illustrating what he's found. And then he concludes with a proverb, and we see that in verse 14, 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Here's the first instance of a proverb, and we'll see another one in verse 18. And when we read crooked, it's, it's not in the ethical sense of, of wicked. It's not criminal or immoral, but it's so bent out of shape, we can't fix it. it, it it's, it's what happens when I have a fender bender, and I can't fix it myself. I don't have the ability. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the expertise. And I'm sure all of us run into things literally or figuratively that get bent out of shape and we can't do anything about it. All of us attempt to straighten out 
what is crooked. All of us attempt to count what really can't be counted. We want to measure it. We, we know it's lacking, but we don't know how to measure it. We know there's a deficit. We, we know something's wrong, but we just we don't know how to fill the gap. We don't, we don't know how to make up for what is lost. Here's Solomon expressing the futility of the human refusal to, to accept things the way they are. There are people in our lives that we can't manage, so to speak. There, there are problems in our lives that we can't solve. There's pressures in our lives we can't escape. With devastating bluntness, the preacher is quick to tell us the worst. The search has come up empty. Before we move on, think about his search, his quest. It is sincere. He applied his heart. It is comprehensive. He, he, he sought to what? To search out all that is done under heaven, under the sun, on earth. There was nothing he, he didn't examine, and we'll see that as we move further in Ecclesiastes. And it's commendable. I mean, he should, be, he, he's, he's, he should be commended for this search. It's sincere, it's comprehensive, and it's commendable, but the search has come up empty. Think about your life for a moment. Are, are there people in your life? Are there problems in your life? Are there pressures in your life that are about to get the best of you? The preacher is saying, that's life on earth. You know, what we'll see in Ecclesiastes is utter realism. Not only realism as to how the earth, excuse me, how the world works, but we'll see the realism of when God enters the picture. Christian realism, as it were. He's come up empty. But not only does the preacher say, I've seen everything, he also says, but I'm a wise man. Join with me as we pick up in verse 16. I said in my heart, he's having an internal discussion with himself. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So what did he seek? Well, for the preacher, the search most naturally begins with wisdom, right? He, he doesn't notice, say anything about the beginning of wisdom, that being the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, as we read in Scripture, that it's the beginning of wisdom. He just, he just goes off and running. And we assume that the wisdom he speaks of here is just the best thinking that man can do. It's the wisdom along the lines is look both ways before you cross the street. The wisdom of paying for a product before you take it out of a store. 
Just basic human wisdom. But then he interestingly brings in that not only does he want to know wisdom, by wisdom as it were, but he wants to know madness and folly. He wants to know what are the alternatives to a life of wisdom? What's the opposite? He wants to know, in other words, the difference between right and wrong. And that's an important task, isn't it? To be able to distinguish between the right and the wrong. But even that will come up empty. I mean, we all know people who are probably way more moral than we are. They do the right thing. They avoid the wrong thing. And yet, have they found life? Have they found meaning? Have they found satisfaction? Or are they content just with... with um, conventional, as it were, morality. And what did he find in all of this? He found nothing. Look at how verse 17 ends. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. He could have said all this vanity again, but he just just shorthands it by saying a striving after the wind. I I, I looked at wisdom, I looked at folly, I looked at madness, and I'm trying to understand, and at the end of the day, I can't grasp it. It's beyond me. I can't catch it. Utterly frustrating. Utterly frustrating. And what does he conclude? Well, he concludes with a proverb. Verse 18. For in much wisdom... Again, is wisdom a good thing? Yes. Is it useful? Yes. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It's interesting. Wisdom and knowledge are good and useful, but paradoxically, they bring frustration and grief. The more he knew, the more he was able to observe, the more he saw how messed up life was. It didn't work well. He's increasing in wisdom, he's increasing in knowledge, and yet that did not fulfill, that did not satisfy. He's got, as it were, all the degrees that could be conferred. He's got the, the diploma from the high school and, and, and the college and the graduate degree. And it brings him vexation and and, and sorrow. One commentator in seeing this passage says that it could be categorized under proud human wisdom that, quote, dethrones God and deifies man, pretending to give him laws and regulations whereby to make him happy. It's what man always does, doesn't he? comes up with regulations, laws that he can achieve, he can succeed, and he can find satisfaction. But as Solomon learned, he comes up empty. Now I want to summarize this search that he just, we just saw and, and briefly summarize it. Notice it was humanistic quest. You see, the preacher undertook it by himself. Do, do you see where he brought the Lord in? To his quest? No. It's humanistic. It is comprehensive. He considers everything. No stone is left unturned. He's looking under everything. 
It's humanistic, it's comprehensive, but it's also unsuccessful. He didn't find what he was looking for. He still hadn't found what he was looking for after starting on this quest. And not only was it a humanistic quest that he took, undertook just by himself, but it was a self-centered quest. You notice that the preacher undertook it for himself. Look how it begins. I applied. I'm doing this for me. He made his spiritual quest essentially without God's help. He could have, but he didn't say that he prayed to the Lord. He could have, but he didn't say, I consulted God's word. All we see is a man off and running on his own, making a comprehensive, unsuccessful quest for his own purposes. Now, as we've seen thus far in chapter one, Ecclesiastes quickly makes us, at least it makes me, feel worse about life than it did before, right? Ecclesiastes 1 will not be a bestseller of your best life now. Ecclesiastes 1 will not lead to the bestseller having it all. No, it really does kind of leave us in a worse place than before. But you know what? That means that the preacher is actually achieving his purpose. God is achieving his purpose in making us feel a bit unsettled. He's showing us that the world from a merely human earthly perspective, that's what we're going to get. You see, our text records one of the dead ends that the preacher pursued in his quest to find meaning in life. And so, my friends, here's the question. Where is the good news when you've come to the end of a dead-end street? Well, on the one hand, you could say, well, I just discovered that that street is dead-ended. And then you turn around and go back, as it were, to the intersection. But I want to step back and, as we wrap up, remember this that Ecclesiastes, like all of the Old Testament, leans forward to the good news of the coming of the Messiah. Ecclesiastes leans forward to the advent of the Messiah. If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Jesus is presented in the temple. And we read there that two... Folks, a man and a woman have something to say as they encounter the newborn Jesus. Simeon, a righteous and devout man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for all the promises made to be promises kept. He was waiting for the misery and the struggle to end He was waiting for a savior. And then Anna, a widow and a prophetess. What was she doing? She went to the temple to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting 
for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see, Simeon and Anna had the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. It was in their scriptures. But it didn't have an answer, but it certainly helped them understand the problem. It helped them see what life looks like just from a horizontal level. And you see, the failure that we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 shows us the Savior that we need. Because at the end of our quest for meaning and purpose, at the end of Solomon's quest, he will find a person. A person. The one who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know, Hebrews says something pretty interesting in chapter 11 about faith. We read in chapter 11, verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please God, but whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Who seek Him. Seeking after the things of the earth end up in dead ends. Seeking after the truth seeking after the Savior, folks find their way to Jesus. What did Solomon say in these Proverbs? That the world is crooked. That the world is lacking. That the world is vexing. And the world is full of sorrow. My friends... Jesus, the Messiah, entered into the crooked, lacking, vexing, and sorrowful world for us and for our salvation to bring us to God. Solomon still couldn't find what he was looking for. Saul, the Pharisee on the road to Damascus, still couldn't find what he was looking for until he met Jesus. He writes to the Ephesians that, that of the mystery of the gospel. He writes to the Colossians of the mystery hidden but now revealed. My friends, the good news that Ecclesiastes 1 points us to the good news that the preacher through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit directing him is to give us a, a growing appreciation, a growing understanding, a growing gratitude that the mystery that was once hidden for ages, how can man be right with God, has now been revealed. And it's the person and work of Jesus. Anyone that follows Jesus knows it's not a dead end. It's, it's the road that leads to life. Life full, life free, life in Him. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your Word is true and Your Word is utterly realistic. It calls life like it sees it. 
And we are thankful for these words in Ecclesiastes which really say that the things on earth, the things under heaven, under the sun, really can't satisfy truly and completely. But you, Father, have made provision for our deepest need, our deepest longing to be in a right and restored relationship with you. And Father, we claim now both the declaration and the request that we believe help our unbelief. Oh, Father, as we enter this Advent season, help us to be all the more aware that our Savior entered our world to bring us to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.